welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California. Now, as always, and, I'm joined by... And I am Bob Bazenko in Houston, Texas. And uh, welcome to part two of our fantastic interview with Professor Clinton Fernandez. If you haven't listened to part one yet, make sure you go do it. Um, and thank you for supporting us. In the 60s, despite this, this amazing and immense uh, propaganda machine that the United States had, the so-called third world, Latin American, Asians, Africans, supported the Vietnamese Revolution and the Cuban Revolution and the South African ANC and the Algerians. Um, and I don't know, I, this is legi- I legitimately don't know today if we're seeing something like that where clearly the West is, is all in on Ukraine, but I don't know what you know, people in, in these kind of subjected peripheral areas, you know, how they feel about it. And that might actually be to China's favor, but so you can, you can speak to that also. I just kind of, what, um, well, we can talk, we can mention that, but also just, you know, what's China's longer game here? Does it have uh, an interest in, in uh, you know, mediating this? Uh, should it just let both sides kind of pound each other a bit in order to kind of create its own opportunities? I mean, China, I think the U.S. is, is clearly the U.S.'s biggest nemesis, not Russia. And yeah, I think I just, Americans don't understand even yet how weak China is still comparatively. There is an immense today, even an imbalance of power, militarily at least. Yeah. And so I just wonder if you wanted to kind of speak to any of that. Uh, yeah, sure. I can talk about China. Look, China's goal is to restore its uh, country uh, to uh, greatness, not dominance, but greatness, um, which means they want to ensure that the country is a middle income country throughout. Um, and uh, it wants to build what it calls uh, a different type of international order, not one dominated by China, but one that is more, um, well, uh, multipolar, let's say, um, that the United States remains the dominant power within its hemisphere, uh, the Western hemisphere, um, that China remains at the center of an economic and uh, military system in East Asia, um, and that Western Europe you know, ought to have its own system or, or Europe. Uh, but uh, as for what um, uh, China is able to do, I just want to say that China actually um, took very seriously the bombing of its embassy in Belgrade in 99, in May 99, uh, and partly because it understood why the US was doing it. <laughs> uh, the Serbs had shot down an advanced American aircraft, a spy plane. And that spy plane was believed to be uh, concealed in the Chinese embassy in Belgrade so that the Chinese could do um, uh, detailed uh, reverse engineering to work out how it worked and to build it themselves, steal the technology. And so it was believed that the reason why the United States bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade uh, wasn't even an accident or or whatever, but in order to stop um, that aircraft falling into the hands of China's engineers. Okay, so that's that's the sort of the basis of it. One of the things they decided to do uh, was take a very close look at the way the United States fought, fought wars, because China has not been in an armed conflict since 1979. It fought a border war with Vietnam. Um, it believed it was going to win, but misjudged the logistics because Vietnam had far more railways uh, in the border uh, with, uh, with China than China had in its border with Vietnam. And so China lost that war, but instead of continuing to stay there, declared victory and came home. Um, and so... It really tried to learn from the United States. And one of the things it figured out was that in the 2003 invasion of Iraq, uh, one of the U.S. aircraft carriers fired 96 Tomahawk missiles uh, in four minutes. Uh, A Tomahawk missile is a cruise missile, which means it has an engine of its own. It it doesn't just operate according to gravity. It can actually fly like a plane. It can be reprogrammed and retargeted in flight. And so if the U.S. aircraft carrier is able to fire 96 Tomahawk missiles from a single carrier in four minutes, uh, China understands that that kind of effort would overwhelm its own coastal defenses in the event of a conflict. So much of its military modernization has been to deal with that aspect of it. Uh, Well, what they also worked out is that the United States, its entire doctrine is based on gaining control of the air. 
it wants to, to use its, its ground forces and its sea forces uh, only after it's achieved air superiority. And so what China did was it built uh, an asymmetric doctrine. It built an integrated air and missile defense system in the South. That means, firstly, it bought Russian air defense uh, systems, and it's called S-400, uh, which have a, a range of about 300 miles, very accurate. Uh, the, the various missile batteries can uh, they have fire control radars. They have wide-ranging radars, which can detect incoming uh, U.S. aircraft, incoming U.S. missiles, uh, incoming, uh, you know, all kinds of ballistic and cruise missiles, and can shoot them down. Um, and they've got fire control radars, and, they're multi and they can communicate because the, the links between one radar battery and a missile battery and other missile batteries are buried underground. So they cannot even be jammed by U.S. cyber jamming, right? And so the military center of gravity of any conflict in the South China Sea is the air defense system in Southern China. As long as that air defense system is in place, the United States cannot gain control of the air. And if it doesn't have control of the air, it cannot win either at land or at sea. Neither it nor any army it creates in its own image is able to fight and win unless it has air control. You can see how within a week of the Bagram air base in Afghanistan being shut down, um, the Afghan National Army shut down. In 2014, uh, as soon as air power was taken away, uh, 800 ISIS fighters in pickup trucks were able to defeat a large Iraqi army, which had been trained by the United States. And as long as China is able to deny the United States air superiority, its blockade of Taiwan can continue indefinitely. So, the, so China understands that, and it's actually worked it out. It's done everything it needs to do, I believe. It's done what it needs to do to take Taiwan. It's just that the taking of Taiwan doesn't need to be by an invasion. It could be by a blockade. If the main effort is a blockade, then the U.S. has no plan B and Taiwan has no plan B. Right? That, that's the first thing. Um, the other aspect of, of, Taiwan, of, of China is it wants to build an economic system. It's called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO. And that integrates Central Asia, uh, India, Russia, in an economic philosophy that uh, could be described as the flying geese. This is a, an economic doctrine that comes out of the 60s and the 70s, whereby the lead country in, um, uh, in the newly industrializing Asian economies, this is the time Taiwan, South Korea, um, so on, uh, one country, Japan, would have the most advanced technology. Uh, and the lower end stuff would be manufactured by the other countries. And then when it, it took on the, 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 the next uh, generation of cutting edge technologies, like a flying geese, the lead geese, the goose in the formation, that technology would go to the next uh, group of countries in the back. So China is trying to get rid of its higher polluting, um, less um, advanced technology, but it wants to give that across to Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, um, and the Central Asian countries. And so it will then continue to, to, to be in the vanguard uh, of the, of the high-end technologies, and the lower-end technologies will get farmed out. And this actually turns out, as far as those countries are concerned, to be a better deal because it's getting technology for free. It's got to be part of the Chinese economic system, but it's getting technology for free. It doesn't have to go cap in hand to the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund and then, sub and then surrender its sovereignty when it can't pay its debts. So that's what China wants. China wants an integrated world economy with enough developmental space for developing countries, but in a system where Chinese uh, corporations have the advantage. This is actually similar to the U.S. program for Japan after World War II, after, after October 1st, 1949. And John Dower has a you know, couple of good books, one embracing defeat on that, where the United States envisioned Japan being this linchpin of Asian capitalism. And I, I actually argue that that's the, the origins of the Vietnam War come out of that because yes. Vietnam is necessary uh, to be, uh, you know, a place for investment, for, uh, you know, um, making uh, small goods. Yes. Uh, and um, with a with a nationalist cum communist revolution, you can't do that. No. And so I think uh, there's a story. I don't know how apocryphal it is that uh, when uh, the Americans took the Japanese surrender, there was a, a map of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere on the wall and the American and the Japanese commander said, well, we couldn't, we failed. Let's see how well you do. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the reverse course, right? I mean, initially it was right. the, uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's China 
that was going yeah. to be the center of uh, right. uh, uh, of of the reconstruction of, of capitalism in East Asia. Right. Uh, but after the, as you said, the first of October '49, when when the nationalists lost uh, and the communists won. Um, that was all changed in a reverse course, and China would be isolated and Japan would be reconstructed, uh, along with the, the emperor system would be preserved. But th- there, there is, th- this is a different kind of world, uh, of course, because, uh, you know, there was a lot of potential real growth possible, high carbon, not very good for the environment, but it was genuine real growth possible with expanded manufacturing, uh, more jobs and things like that. The growth that's been in place essentially uh, since the last 40 years of the neoliberal assault on the population has actually involved um, low growth and a lot of funny money that's come in since 2008. I mean, that, that's really what, um, you know, is, is at the scene. It's, there is a, a really weak foundations of uh, industrial capitalism now with the, uh, the increasing amounts of, of um, quantitative easing, uh, with the Fed printing uh, more and more money. And I just want to uh, read out something from a book that I've just finished reading. Okay, so Christopher Lennon, in his new book, The Lords of Easy Money, he says that in the first century of its existence, the U.S. Federal Reserve expanded the monetary base to about $900 billion U.S., right? So that it took about 100 years to print about $1 trillion, round figures, but after 2008, this is the 2008 crisis, between 2008 and 2014, it printed $3.5 trillion. So that means uh, the Fed printed three and a half centuries worth of money in a few years. And after COVID, it printed the same amount, $3 trillion, in a few months. And so all those years of economic policy that flooded the financial system made the U.S. economy and the other economies connected to it more fragile and unfair. I mean, it, it benefited portfolio investors like BlackRock and Vanguard uh, because it meant they were able to buy into the stock exchanges of other countries. But the economy as a whole remained stagnant um, and, and fragile and weak. Uh, and so that's not really the basis on which one can reconstruct and, and promise a, a better life or a better future uh, for people. Uh, and, you know, I... The austerity programs um, and the uh, the atomization of the population, I think, is also partly responsible, in my view, uh, for some of the irrational behavior and the antisocial behavior um, that we are seeing. Uh, we've been seeing over the last five years. Do you anticipate China at some point kind of playing some kind of mediating role here, or just kind of uh, uh, waiting it out? Um, I think China will wait it out because if you look at it, um, they, firstly, they don't want to be too, asso- too closely associated with wars. I mean, China has a policy right. of respecting country sovereignty. And what Russia did was illegal. It's a violation of the United Nations Charter. And so China can't be seen to be too close to it. Uh, but um, also, um, I, th- I believe because of China's influence, um, Russia has pulled its punches. You know, we have not seen a complete shutdown uh, of Ukraine's electricity system or its internet or its food distribution systems via cyber warfare. Russia has actually withheld its more cutting edge uh, assets from the war. Also, for the first week and a half, it actually wasn't fighting at night. Its aircraft were capable of fighting at night, not as capable as the United States, but it was capable, but they decided not to in order to avoid civilian casualties. And so the full range of the shock and awe and everything else has not been unleashed. And so what Russia really wants, I think, is just a squeeze and China will come in if needed. But I think it's trying to disassociate itself and it would like the whole thing to go away, frankly. Uh, uh, But uh, it's also more concerned about the effect of the war on economic stability around the world. And I think we should be talking about that. Go ahead. Okay. I was actually going to ask you a question about the dollar, but why don't you do that first? Okay. Oh, well, go for the dollar. We then, we, the, well, I, I, I mean, this is kind of, uh, you know, uh, esoteric, but, uh, and I'm, I actually think people are, are ahead of themselves because I've been reading these kinds of prophecies since 1960, November of 1967, when the British devalued the pound. But, uh, you know, again, we're kind of seeing these kind of, especially lefty economic types uh, say that this is going to be the end of American dollar hegemony. And I'm 
always reluctant on that's that. Nonsense. But I just no, no, that's yeah, nonsense. I, 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 that's what it's I consider. Utter nonsense. The, the, the United States is still, look, 66% of um, US dollars are still held overseas, not in the United States. Right. Um, right. Uh, 85% of uh, contracts for the most heavily traded commodity in the world, namely oil, uh, are denominated. The contracts are denominated. And, and Russia is still uh, selling $700 million of oil every day? Yep. Those contracts are denominated in oil. Uh, in, in dollars. Uh, and so, no, I just find, look, I, it's not that I, I reject it in, as a possibility in principle. It's just that the evidence is that as long as two thirds of, of every US yeah. dollar printed uh, in existence is not actually been, been transacted in the United States, um, I just don't see the dollar kind of disappearing yeah. or even not uh, being less A powerful. lot of American leftists are kind of hoping for some kind of Hail Mary, which often leads them to take very bizarre positions as well. Yeah, I, look, I, this Hail Mary business, I think, is, 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 reflects the, the organizational weakness. And if you might, don't mind me indulging, indulging me in a kind of, uh, uh, kind of a digression. I, I watched a movie a few years ago. It's been a long time since I watched a movie. It was called Avatar. I was told to go watch it because uh, it, it was supposed to be a cutting-edge film. It was about people who looked like the blue-colored organisms who were, uh, who were fighting guerrilla war against uh, you know, settler colonialists or something like that. Uh, well, that movie ends with nature itself expelling uh, the colonizers, okay? Uh, that's not the way to understand politics. Nature is not going to solve it for you. Uh, uh, you know, uh, organization is what solves it, not belief in environmental calamity as the way to solve the problem of imperial capitalism. Uh, and, and, you know, Avatar, and just let me cut in. In 1983, George Frost Cannon wrote a piece in the New York Times in which he said, um, and this is the time during Reagan's buildup where he said that uh, uh, nuclear escalation is not the gravest crisis facing the world. It's some kind of cataclysmic climate crisis. So <laughs> right. I guess, right. I guess Kennan, Kennan is on the side of who was it? Yeah, James Cameron or whoever made that movie. So. Right. Yeah. But, the, but the point is in that, in that film, Avatar, You've got, I haven't got, seen it. I, I don't know. I haven't seen it. So. Well, I, think, I think you should watch it for this reason. It is impossible to watch the film and not think of Indochina. Oh, okay. Okay. Impossible. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Uh, to watch that film yeah. and not think about, uh, about um, uh, the air war uh, in Laos, uh, the, oh, okay. the reaction of the peasants. But then what happens is the reason, the, the reason these guys win, the insurgents win, is that, is that the trees, the animals, the weather, everything else comes in and, and expels uh, you know, the, the, the settler colonizers or the imperial forces. And really, um, that is escapism because, yeah. uh, you know, climate change is not going to kind of end uh, imperialism. It's going to uh, ensure that imperialism is conducted within a system. Well, uh, yeah, the, the victims of it are going to be the, the, the subject of the empire, obviously. Yeah. The, the it's going to be another thing in which, yeah. which capitalists yeah. can make money off of. The, yeah, the first, the, first world, the first world already benefits immensely from uh, global warming, and it's going to continue to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the, 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 so this is what I want to say about the climate and the and, and the effect of the war. This is what China's looking at, and this is what we should all be looking at. Um, and that is that uh, you mentioned the Ukraine flag. I'm not on social media. I used to be in in the early 2000s, but I'm not anymore. Oh, it's uh, everywhere uh, in the United States. Everybody right. in the United States. It's like uh, you know, in 2020, everybody had Black Lives Matters. Uh, yes. You know, banners up and. You know, everybody did tie yellow ribbon. What was that? The, the Iran hostage crisis. Americans yes. are really big on symbolism. With social media, it's compounded. Everybody has like an, the uh, Ukrainian flag is now a profile on Facebook or Twitter. And, you know, uh, all the cities are, are, are at night. They're lighting up the city hall in the colors of the Ukrainian flag. And uh, people uh, are raising do me a money. Favor. Bob, what's that? Uh, and Scott, what's the flag of the Democratic Republic of Congo look like? <laughs> This is what I mean by soft power. Of course, of course, of course. What's flag yeah. of Palestine look like? What's flag of Yemen look like? What's flag of yeah. Somalia look like? Yeah. Right. Yep. My, my uh, contrary and leftist friends have them putting Palestinian flags on their on their okay. Facebook pictures. Though. Well, I, I I could I could pick Cuba and Palestine out of a lineup. The rest I'm not so sure about. You okay. Know? Well, let's let's talk about the Ukraine flag because this actually is quite important uh, for geopolitics. Okay. Yeah. The flag is blue over yellow, and yeah. it is done explicitly to denote a flat wheat field underneath an azure sky. The blue sky over a wheat field, that is explicitly what it's supposed to connote. And that is because uh, Ukraine is called the breadbasket of Europe. Um, it's a major transit country of Russian gas, but more important than that, uh, it is the fifth largest producer of wheat, of, of uh, exporter of wheat. Russia, which produces 
let's say 20% of the world's wheat. So basically, for every five grains of wheat, uh, on average, one is Russian, right? And uh, maybe the second is Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, um, war disrupts Russia's wheat exports around the world, or at least it makes the price of commodities like uh, uh, grain, like oilseed, um, like bread, sugar, maize, uh, higher. Now, that's actually how the Arab Spring was triggered. It was triggered in part by food inflation. Right? Uh, Egypt, in fact, uh, uh, you know, still gets the bulk of its wheat from Russia and Ukraine because it's converted its uh, agricultural resources on the Nile to produce cotton. I mean, this is the doctrine of comparative advantage. It's not supposed to be uh, self-sufficient, despite having the world's, you know, one of the largest rivers in the world and food sufficiency. It's actually designed to produce cotton so that other people can can make cloth uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, high-end uh, kind of fashion. And so uh, wheat prices are you know, 25% higher uh, this year than they were last year. Uh, fertilizers, which Russia makes a lot of, fertilizer prices are going to be higher, uh, is going to be increased because demand is going is to go le- uh, be, be less. Uh, natural gas is going to increase the price of that, and that's a key component in fertilizers. So the, the shock effects of this in terms of hunger uh, around the world and instability uh, and more and more people uh, are, are marching in the streets at precisely the time when the global South has gone into debt in order to cope with COVID and to provide for, its, for their people. Uh, that, the ripple effects, the disorder that's coming, I think is a major story this decade. There are two things we've talked about in your program uh, that I think are going to be validated uh, for the next, you know, ten years from now, and perhaps it should be, uh, you should archive it in a way that it can be accessed or at least highlighted. One is the uh, the, the neo-Nazi slash criminal gangs that will plague Europe uh, at the end of the decade, and the other one is this whole decade is going to result in greater instability in our peoples and governments being overthrown in the global south because of the, the increasing cost of wheat and fertilizer, which are essential. Um, the the most important human rights organizations in the world have declared this is the case. I'm not referring to Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International. I'm referring to the real, the really most important human rights organizations in the world, the World Food Program and the Food and Agriculture Organization. Uh, the, these are missing from the debate in Australia. If you ask an Australian, well, what's the human rights organizations? If they have an answer, the answer would be Amnesty or Human Rights Watch. Um, but in fact, if you're looking at the human rights of the, of the majority of the world's 7 billion people, um, we're talking about the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and the World Food Program. Um, well, they're already reporting that the prices of everything is increasing, that uh, uh, there are taxes uh, to, to curb consumption, but because supply is less, then the price goes even higher. Um, and uh, uh, fertilizers are, are more. And given the fact that the, on average, if, you, if somebody were to visit, visit the planet Earth from a foreign planet, they would say the typical earthling is a peasant. That's where actually people are. Um, And they need fertilizers. Well, if natural gas is a major component of fertilizer and the price of natural gas is soaring, then fertilizers become expensive and the price of wheat becomes expensive. Um, And then you have the inability of governments to cope and the Washington consensus of austerity, of the privatization of state assets, of the financialization of the economy uh, is simply unable to cope in this decade. But the China model could help them. And so mm-hmm. this is, this is the, the, the broader realignment that's going on. Sorry, I'll, I'll Well, start. I, I believe yeah. just a couple of days ago, um, I think it was in Egypt, I read that there were food protests there already because of the price of grains. Is that so right? It's, it's I, I've been there. very busy teaching. So I, I've been yeah, I, I believe teaching. it was in Egypt, but they're already you're already seeing, you know, these kind of popular protests against the, the price it, of grains, the, it, the price it, of fertilizer. And um, that's only, you know, the longer this this continues. And I think it's going to continue for quite some time. Uh, obviously, that's going to get worse. And obviously, the the people who live in precarity globally are going to be the, yes. you know, the people who are affected by it. Hey, the other thing I would say from the sort of like shock perspective of like what we'll see which will be a problem in a decade and decades to come is, you know, the energy sector is actually using this opportunity, disruption of oil and gas in here from Russia, that sort of thing, where there's been some progress on climate emissions and things like that. They're going to use this to like lock in the more fossil fuels 
they're, they're putting here in the U S they're putting more export. There's, you know, lots of projects where they're trying to like make more export capacity on the Gulf of Mexico and things like that, where those, th- pro- those, uh, those projects have been defeated. They're putting those back on the table. I would say a similar thing could probably happen with nuclear. I just think it's also going to lock in a lot of the dangerous energy sources that we've been fighting for a long time as a result of yeah. this as well. Yes. I mean, but the thing is, though, that, you know, do policymakers know about the longer term effects of the things you and I have been talking about, uh, Scott? Uh, you know, well, here uh, they don't even believe in it. Many of them don't even believe in the long term effects. So, yeah, they, you know, we used to believe that that people in Congress, let's say, or state legislators, you know, they had this ideological predisposition, but they weren't idiots. They were just kind of playing to the rubes. Right. That's not the case anymore. They are profoundly ignorant and stupid and racist and reactionary in ways that even 10 years ago, I would have found unimaginable. They, they are who they are. It's not like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Boebert. I mean, that's not an act. Uh, Matt Gates and Jim Jordan, those, those are not uh, circus performers. They're, they're real and it's, it's chilling. Well, 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 look, uh, uh, can I ask you guys, uh, each of you, please, to, to just talk ab- about what's going on in your country as we come up to the, the midterm elections in November? Uh, how do you see um, the, the elections playing out, given the electoral, uh, um, you know, the laws that are trying to be coming in, uh, coming in are being suppressed at times? Uh, because, you know, is the United States heading for proto-fascism by the 2024 presidential elections? That's what I want to know. What do you think? I don't like throwing the word fascism around. I think it's too okay. Easy okay, and look, let's, let's but, Bob, but in that case, let's call it let's call it neo authoritarianism because it's basically it's, minority rule. It's going to be a bloodbath for the Democratic Party. Um, I don't see how they can avoid that short of something bizarre happening. It's they are. I don't know if you're familiar with the Globe Charters that well, the Harlem Globe Charters, but the Democrats are the Washington Generals of politics. That's the team that is is always they they play against the Globe Charters. Their 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 role is to lose every game, right? And, and that's the Democratic Party, no matter Hang on how a second. good things look. I, 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 look, I mean, I know with the Harlem Globetrotters, I've never seen a game because I don't really care for basketball yeah. uh, or anything like that. But you mean to say it's actually fixed? Well, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a celebrity thing. They go around. It's entertainment. It's like a circus. It's not a real basketball. I mean, it's a real basketball team, but it's not like a league. They just but they're supposed to the, lose, are they? They play all over the world. Yeah. And the Washington Generals are their f- a, a, opponent every game. And, and they're and, and you're lose. supposed to lose every game. Lose. They let them win once, one time a year. Yeah, <laughs> and they their job is to lose to the Globetrotters, no matter what, right? And the Democratic Party. I mean, after January 6, twenty twenty one. I mean, in a sane world, the Republican Party would have probably disbanded, right? They had just like they had organized and conducted an attack, a riot in the, in, this, in the national capital, and yet yeah. no, there's been no repercussions. No one politically has been touched, you know, people like the senator here in Texas, Ted Cruz or Hawley, none of, nothing's happened to any of them. Um, and, you know, in all the polling, the Republicans are seen as like more responsible, better on the economy, better. It's absolutely stunning. And I mean, we can talk a lot about how bad Americans are and how bad our education system is. But at some point, the Democratic Party needs to own this. They are utterly beyond any kind of description, you know, incompetent. And it will but, be... But but then explain to me, uh, could you explain to me then uh, how you see that particular political alignment uh, in the United States uh, reacting to um, uh, Central Asia and, uh, and parts of Eurasia integrating themselves into uh, a Chinese-led economic sphere? How would they react to this? Scott, yeah, I've been talking too much. Yeah, I mean... I mean, the, the part, one of some of their talking points is it's very anti-China. It was like a big thing with Trump. And so, I mean, I, I think they're going to be very isolationist on that. I think, I think that there's like a, there's a, there's a big component of the Republican party, which is like the far right, the Trump right, very isolationist, which, you know, will have. Which but also anti-NATO and anti, they're also anti-NATO and anti-intervention in a lot of ways too. So. That's true. There's, there's a big racist element and anti-Asian ra- racism is a, is a big part yeah. of that. And so. I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I sometimes go back and forth about how much power they wield versus how much media attention they get. But I, but I do think that that faction, whether it's 20 million people or 200 million people are going to be like, you know, very much opposed to that sort of thing. It's, that's what's been interesting about what we're seeing with this, you know, the, the sort of pro-Ukrainian message that we're seeing in the U.S. media is like so many people have like turned. It's, it's amazing how much the, 
manufactured consent actually has wields power over that. And that far right has its own media sphere, which like we don't watch. We, we see clips of it and laugh at it, but you know, they also have a lot of power. Tucker Carlson, Fox News, all of those folks. And there are elements that are still, even now, still very much pro-Putin and they, you know, they have cheers going for him and everything else. It's, 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 I, I don't know. It's, it's. I'll just give an example of, of, of how we have it here. Um, in Australia, every election must occur on a Saturday between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. No, never on a weekday and never outside those hours of 8, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. on a Saturday. This is whether it's a state election, a federal election, uh, any kind of election. Um, and they are always held in certain pre-designated areas like primary schools and things like that. Uh, and there, it's a community event, people you know, offering sausage sizzles and uh, all kinds of other things. Now, they have um, outlawed giving water to people vote, waiting in line to vote in certain states. They've outlawed giving what? Water. Food and water. In, in you cannot have water state of Georgia. In, like, in Texas or Georgia, when it's 100 degrees, you're not allowed to give somebody a bottle of water. While they're waiting in line to vote. Yeah. Uh, really? You think we can but, make that okay. up? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I mean, look, it would take Gore Vidal and Hunter Thompson on like the biggest acid trip ever to make this shit up, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, look, just so you understand what happens here, um, it's um, it's the electoral commission conducts elections according to a certain way, and it's not affected by the by the way the legislation of uh, the legislative bodies, parliament, and so on. You know that they, they don't actually have any control. They they put in place a system which is agreed on, and then the, the electoral authority kind of runs it. Um, and it's it's neutral. It's highly respected. Um, and then there are it's a community environment with all kinds of facilities like sausages and and water or you know whatever else, soft drinks, tea, coffee. Uh, provided uh, by community people, anybody, um, while people are staying in line. And of course, in Australia, voting is compulsory. And so uh, you can be fined if you, if you don't vote uh, and you haven't got a good reason uh, for it. And the reasons why you'd be exempted are themselves uh, withheld from the public. So people can't simply uh, draw on reasons and say, well, I'm offering you this reason. So basically, there's a high degree of public support for compulsory voting, along with the general annoyance on the actual day of voting. But if the United States were to be admitted into the Australian Federation, let us say hypothetically, it would not, ha- it would not be allowed. In fact, the United- there was a study that showed that the United States would not be allowed into the European Union because its electoral system, its voting system is not democratic. Uh, the very idea that you can have an election on a weekday uh, and thereby uh, deny working people, especially the gig economy, the opportunity to vote um, would be intolerable in this country. It yeah. has to happen on a Saturday between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. Yep. Quick question, a little bit of a tangent. You know, I, I know that there's an election that may be called, it has to be called before May for prime minister. And, yes. And, and, I'm, and I'm wondering you know, what you think his prospects are, particularly in light of security issues happening right sure. now globally. Right. Uh, the election hasn't been announced. The election is more is very likely to be co- to, to occur on the 14th of May. Uh, under our laws, uh, when the prime minister calls an election, um, there is a minimum of uh, 33 days between issuing the writs that's calling the election and holding the election. So let's take around figure 35, that's, seven, that's uh, five weeks, um, which means when the election is called, it'll probably be in early April um, or, or late March, so towards the end of this month. Um, the government is behind in the polls, but not um, decisively so. Uh, the, the prime minister or the government, the political party in power, uh, led by the prime minister himself, are very weak uh, in polling numbers of women between 25 and 55, and from 35 to 55, they are even worse. I don't see how you can, he can uh, compensate for that. They, they just don't have uh, that demographic under control. So what they're trying to do is fight a khaki election, uh, or khaki, as you call it, a khaki election. So a khaki election uh, by highlighting everything that is occurring in Ukraine as though it's occurring you know, in the center of Australia uh, by... Uh, any time a Chinese ship passes in international waters or Australia's exclusive economic zone, if there's any tensions as there was recently, uh, it'll be front page news and the, and the defense minister will call a press conference. Because uh, the core point is what we said earlier, 
that the media are not effective in telling you what to think, but they are stunningly effective in telling you what to think about. And salience is the issue in winning an election. Every issue is not is not there. The pro- every topic doesn't come up for the, for, for uh, to decide an election. The question is issue salience. What's the core issue? And if they can frame the core issue as national security, uh, then it's quite possible that the government will be returned in the lower house. Um, but that said, I I'm not going to sort of hedge my bets. I'm, well, it it looks like the Labour Party will win at least in the lower house, they'll have to get the numbers in the Senate uh, in order to have their legislation through. Uh, however, if there is a, if, if the government's polling numbers recover among women aged 25 or 35 to 55, uh, which is very unlikely, the government will also be returned. Um, and if, uh, uh, if, if they manage to actually make it a khaki election, then yes, uh, the government will be, will be returned. Uh, if Labour does win, is there any reason to think they would you know, be different on, on these particular issues, on these, these, you know. They'll be better on, yeah. on climate change. On, 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 on no, but I mean, in terms of like Ukraine and, oh, no, you know, no. submarine sales and all no, that. It, no, yeah. no. Uh, let me tell you, let me tell you right yeah. now what, uh, what the plan is. And it's bipartisan. It is, it is in the opposition leader's national security strategy, which he announced two days ago. Okay. And it's reflected in the statements made by the government as well. The Australian Defence Force is going to increase its size Um by 2040 uh, and even sooner, the size of the army is going to increase by a third. Uh, And what they haven't told the public is what I'm telling you now. Um, The war planners have already worked out that a war that is started or that occurs in the South China Sea will not end there. Uh, The Chinese rational response to a war in the South China Sea is to encourage North Korea to attack South Korea. And this would force the United States to defend South Korea, which it's committed to, on land across a very, very long logistics tail across the Pacific Ocean. And so Australia will be fighting in South Korea. It'll be fighting on the Korean Peninsula by the, by the end of this decade or by sometime next decade. And the buildup of the army is not done um, just for a khaki election. That's, that's agreed on by the opposition leader, announced by the government. And if the opposition leader becomes the prime minister, then Australia is, is planning, is gearing up its armed forces to fight a conventional high-intensity war on the Korean Peninsula. That simply cannot be told to the Australian public. But that's where we're heading. Keep this in mind, because the war game has already occurred. And they know that a war that begins in the Spratly Islands will end in Busan. That's, that's good to hear. <laughs> uh, on that happy note, my, my final question is that last year we talked to you about uh, your legal case around the records around Chile and the Chilean yes. coup. And I'm wondering if you want to give us just a quick update or, or anything okay. on that. Well, the case is kind of terminated now because uh, we were able to confirm at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal that the government, you know, when the government handed up several of its records, you know, 700 pages of its records, some of them blacked out. Uh, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, uh, at the behest of the CIA, set up uh, a station in Santiago, Chile. They spied on um, on the government, ran agents for the CIA, acted as a conduit between the coup plotters uh, in '73 and the CIA. We have the details of the safe house they got, uh, the car they bought. Uh, We even have the combination number of the safe that they bought to put in that safe house. Um, What we weren't able to get from from the government uh, at that part of the proceedings was further details and things we were not really, we don't really want to know, like the identity of the agents. I really couldn't care less about all that. Um, But uh, to get more information, I would have to go to the Federal Court of Australia um, and the difference between the Federal Court of Australia and the Administrative Appeals Tribunal is that the Administrative Appeals Tribunal is within the executive branch of government. Uh, and so I carry my own costs. If I, lo- if I were to lose at the AAT, then I only pay my costs, not the government's. But if I go to the Federal Court and, and I win, then, of course, I get the documents. I get everything. But if I lose there, then I have to pay for the government's lawyers uh, and everything else, which means there's no way that I'm ever going to go to the Federal Court. So... Uh, the accounting I've just given you about what Australia actually did to overthrow and they destroy Chilean democracy is probably uh, the most we're going to see until the government itself decides to declassify. 
Uh, the, the, the important point about this, though, is uh, not the details about who did what in Chile uh, or which agent did what. The most important thing about it is that the same Australian government that sent military forces to Vietnam to destroy social transformation there sent its secret intelligence service, its spy agency to Chile to destroy social transformation there because the resources of a region have to be made available uh, to private investors in the manner they desire. This is the idea of comparative advantage. It is the imperial component of, it is the economic component of imperialism. And still something that even within the hallowed halls of American academia, one does not talk about without uh, repercussions, unfortunately. Right. Um, one last thing, since you have a couple minutes, and this is because we are all experts, right? And we are supposed to have some kind of predictive abilities. And I just wondered, uh, I mean, basically what I see is just a big slog and a lot more people, you know, being hurt and dying and, uh, in, in uh, Ukraine uh, with, you know, the attendant economic uh, issues, you know, involved in a sanctions or inflation here at home. I just, it's, it's, I don't see anything, you know, positive coming out of this. I just wondered you know, where you see things going? Uh, the the uh, idea of Ukrainian neutrality that uh, the, the Ukrainian president has been, talk, been, been finally agreeing to talk about, I think that's where it'll, it'll end, that, uh, that, that there will not be NATO forces in Ukraine. I mean, that, that is something that is, the, that is the bottom line of Russia. Oh, yeah. uh, that's, oh, their, yeah. that's their war objective. If they can prevent uh, NATO forces in their near abroad, as they say, then uh, they, they, they've achieved their mission. They don't actually want to take over Ukraine. You know, they, they don't want to kind of uh, annex Ukraine. Uh, that's an immense task. Want. No, that's Well, they, they, that's not the way they understand it. They understand Belarus and Ukraine and Russia as somehow belonging to some common heritage right. whilst, reta- whilst retaining, um, you know, political independence, except that you can't bring in a hostile military alliance to the border. But where this is going to get... Well, you, you know, you, you sound like a tanky now. That was actually the issue in 1950. We'll, we'll talk about that at some other point. Anyway. You know who the tankies are? The tankies are the people. I, I'm, I'm kind of one, so be careful. So. Well, the tankies are the people that actually applaud tanks going into other countries. So if you have no problem with the invasion of Iraq, with which use tanks? No, I, I, I think Hungary in 1956. Then you're a tanky. Yeah. I think Hungary in 1956, there were the kind of concerns you just enunciated were actually present in Hungary in 1956. Well, uh, once Nog talked about joining NATO, the tanks were coming in. Anyway. Well, I mean, Russia is not the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was basically trying to preserve its own empire in a way. Yeah. Right. Uh, Russia, basically, the, the current leaders of Russia um, represent four factions. OK, uh, there are the liberal reformers. So these are the people who uh, in the 1990s came out of the party called Yabloko, Y-A-B-L-O-K-O, the Yabloko party. So the liberals are one faction. Uh, you know, there's a lot of internal uh, differences between them, but broadly speaking, they are the ones that support, um, you know, f- liberalization of both political and economic. Um, there are the traditionalists, those who believe that there is no need to try and integrate into Europe. We have our own traditional culture. We are Russian. We are neither Asian nor European. We are Russian. And the Russian Orthodox Church is our church. We have our own traditions, our own history. Uh, we have a unique civilization. And uh, that the role of the Russian state should be to foster Russian traditionalism. It is a kind of uh, cultural conservatism um, that is the second current in Russian political thought. Right? The third current is what's called uh, the Ordovici Siloviki, the uh, S-I-L-O-V-I-K-I. This is the security guardians. That's the national security people. This crisis has empowered them. That's the, that's the third thing. And the fourth one are those who actually believe in a kind of a pan-Eurasian uh, integration. So you've got the, 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 the liberals who are kind of liberal reformers. You've got the, uh, the traditionalists. Uh, you've got the pan-Europeans. And you've got the, the guardians, the, the security guardian faction. Um, and neither of them is actually trying to recreate the Soviet Union. It's not, the, it's not that kind of society anymore. Um, you know, and so the, the relationship between that and, and the Soviet Union's own internal repression, I think, is 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 drawing a long bow. And and to clarify, my point was simply that um, just like you know the Soviet Union in 1956, I think Putin's claims that NATO is a, is a is a threat, a hostile act, should be taken seriously. I'm not yeah. justifying anything. L- like let that. me give you an example. Let me give an example, then Scott and Bob. Uh, if our 
intelligence in Australia were to detect that an airfield anywhere in the Indonesian archipelago is being lengthened, lengthened by 500 meters, uh, we would have a conversation with the Indonesian ambassador. Okay, because if you lengthen an airfield in Indonesia by 500 meters, you increase the, the size and range of aircraft that can take over from there, take off from there, which means we plan for the other side's capabilities, not mm -hmm. their intentions. And so it's not actually tankiness or anything like that. It is just normal strategic planning. It's a like Cuban uh, missile crisis, right? You see, yeah. uh, you get some aerial photos and all of a sudden you're yeah. risking a, a, a yeah. nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. Yeah, uh, look, so, the, 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 the sad part of it, of it is that in the minds of many Ukrainians, what they actually wanted was peace. And they actually thought, this is the people of, in the Galicia area of Ukraine, this is the northwestern part of Ukraine, which is the more westernized pro-European, pro-NATO part. Uh, in that area of Ukraine, they genuinely believed that uh, the way to peace was to join NATO. Yeah. Because they don't, they lack strategic empathy, you see. They, they weren't able to understand that this was actually going to cause problems. I mean, there the, 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 the genuinely was the belief that, look, all we're trying to do is be defensive. Anyway, the, the more significant I, I, point I, is not, I, the is, significant it, point is not, uh, is not uh, Ukraine's uh, current uh, travails, but the, uh, the, 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 the prices of everything else that's going to cause instability in the global south around the world, uh, as well as um, the difficulties uh, with uh, crime gangs and war warlords yeah. developing in Europe. Uh, well, and also, you, you asked about the elections earlier, and one thing, you know, because people are creating this like wag the dog scenario for Biden, he's doing this to improve his election. However, if you look at data, uh, polling data, um, by an overwhelming margin, most Americans think inflation in the economy is the worst problem the U.S. faces right now. And so, Biden, with by taking this really hard line on Ukraine, and by the way, I'm not sure he's going to, the U.S. is going to negotiate anytime soon be willing to negotiate anytime soon or, or NATO. But, but my point is by, by taking this hard line, he's probably making inflation much worse, which is going to hurt his own election prospects. So I'm not really sure what the end game was on the US side either, because everybody saw this coming for, for a long, long, I'm not, I'm not brilliant. I just, you know, I know a little bit and, yeah. you know, this is nothing, nothing here surprises me at all. No, but, but, but the, the way the policy works, I think there's in general, not, not this particular policy. I don't know what's in the mind of the policymakers. But I think the evidence that we've seen over the years is that policy is made um, to achieve certain immediate objectives. And then the problem, the can is then kicked down the road so that the next government handles whatever uh, problems come out of the policy. Um, and so if you want to establish a military base in the heart of the Middle East uh, oil rich areas, namely the invasion of Iraq, uh, the next government's problem is to deal with whatever happens from that. And so, that, so there is a the normal process is that planning, you know, at least in a in a dem democratic society with uh, changing political parties and so on, is that direction is set for the particular term of the administration, and then any problems that come about as a result of that, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of kick down the, the road, and then the next person's going to deal with that. Every time I talk to you, it's like a, a seminar. Um, I uh, you are. Uh so important to me intellectually as well as a comrade and I've learned so much from you. So uh, thanks uh, well, for talking. Well, thank you very us. much for the opportunity. I mean, I, you know, I'm uh, like I said, I'm, I'm with uh, green and red. What's next. I got to, I can get to sing with Sinatra. We both open for Chomsky, right? So we've done that. So. <laughs> we're like the rat pack of the pot, left wing. Pot yeah. I mean, once, once you've opened for Chomsky, what's, what's left, right? Yeah. So, uh, Maybe do a duel well, with Bob Dylan or something like that. Maybe, but, uh, maybe, maybe at some at some point we should have a a, 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 a podcast in a few months' time on on uh, the a democratic, equitable international order. Because um, what's being proposed at the United Nations since September two thousand eleven, it's never never been reported even once in the United States media. I checked among the among the major organs, the the the, the phrase "democratic, equitable international order" has never been discussed. Right, that's the alternative to the rules-based imperial order, and perhaps we can uh, we can we can say that there is hope. Um, there are alternatives. It's not either Putin and Xi Jinping or the U.S. Empire, but rather there is a possibility for democratic and equitable international order, which I think should be discussed. You know, I always tell Scott when you and I 
talk. We talk for about this long and these are our conversations. This is, this is yeah. just typical. So yeah. uh, it is, I've learned so much and uh, um, no, I can't wait to talk Thank to you again. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay. Folks, you've been listening to Professor Clinton Fernandez. We've been talking about Russia, Ukraine, and many, many other things. Uh, if you want to continue to check us out, go to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. And if you want to make a donation, go to greenredpodcast.org, hit that support button. And then also, if you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. Clinton, it's been also, great. Also, rate, rate, rate and review and leave some comments because that's important for algorithms. So yep. uh, we appreciate all your support. Yep. Everybody take care out there. Misbehave. Thank you, Scott. Bob, bye-bye. The Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, and you tell me. Understand what I'm trying to say. Can't you feel the fears that I'm feeling today? If the button is pushed, there's no running away. There'd be no one to save with the world in a grave. Take a look around your boy. It's about to scare your boy. Tell me.